Good morning, church family. If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew 5. It's going to be 17 through 20. I think the bulletin said 13 through 16. It just didn't get changed from last week. But it's 17 through 20. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. The title of the message is Christ came to fulfill the law. And what does that mean to us? What do you think about when you hear something regarding laws? Are your thoughts mostly negative or are they positive ones? How do you normally deal with laws? What difference do laws make in your everyday lives? There's some crazy laws on the books around this country, but in Washington State, did you know that there's a law existing that bans lollipops? Really? There's a law making it illegal to harass Sasquatches. That one probably didn't surprise you. There's a law against being in public when you have a common cold. There's a law against pretending that your parents are rich. There's a law against spitting on a bus. That's probably a pretty good law. There's a law against buying meat or mattresses on Sundays. Not sure about that And there's also a law against sleeping in someone else's outhouse. I guess it's okay to sleep in your own outhouse. I don't know why you'd want to do that. Folks from Texas can probably tell us why why you'd want to do that. I don't know. There's some crazy laws on the books in every state, but not all laws are as goofy as those I just read to you. We live in a country that's governed by laws, and that's a good thing. Even though we at times may disagree with the fairness or the necessity of a law or how it's applied in our culture, how it's interpreted, right? Laws are a part of life in our society, and we all have to pay attention to them, and we all have to respect them whether we agree with them or not, whether we like them or not. Around the nation, we constantly see debates on the news about laws regarding so-called assault rifles and other Second Amendment issues, laws governing abortion, immigration, the LGBTQ community, just to name a few. And we've all experienced frustration over the passage of, of certain laws or what we may, may see as the inequitable enforcement of existing laws. But however we might feel about a certain law or laws, there's no chance that any of us would choose to live in a country that did not have laws. Now, thanks to the images that we can see on our television and on our computer screens, of places where the law is virtually non-existent. We don't have a lot of trouble imagining in our minds what that might look like. But you know, and you do know this, that in Scripture, there's a time that's described roughly 3,000 years ago. We read about it in Judges 21-25. We read, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So when there's no objective authority, no law. It's up to each individual to decide what the law is. And if I have more power than you, if I have more might than you, I can decide to take whatever, it has, whatever you have it is that I want. And who's to say I'd be breaking the law if each of us get to decide, if there's no objective authority? So we're going to read verses 17 through 20 now in Matthew 5, and I'd like to ask you to stand and honor the reading of God's Word. Jesus is speaking here, and he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, 
will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your Holy Spirit being present with, with us today because you promised to be present. And we need that, Lord. We need you to open up our ears and our minds and our hearts to what you would say to us, Father. I pray you'd speak through me, as I always do, Lord, your Spirit speaking through me to your people that we all might leave this place challenged and changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. When it comes to the law of God, we generally say that those who are opposed to the law of God simply don't know God. But sadly, the truth is there are a lot of Christians who get this wrong. They say stuff like, well, you know, we're not under law, we're under grace now. And that often leads to a false view of grace. And I wish we had time this morning to do a little doctrinal work on, on grace, but we don't. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones does write this. They think that grace is apart from law and has nothing to do with it. That's the attitude of people who abuse the doctrine of grace in order to live a sinful, lazy type of spiritual life. They say, I'm not under the law, but under grace, and therefore it does not matter what I do. And then there are many Christians in our culture who say they're believers, even call Jesus Lord, yet, have, yet who have in all reality established a religion of their own creation, doing their own thing in the name of their version of Jesus. According to their way of thinking, they only have to obey what they decide, what they feel is right and good. They even establish their own concept of obedience based on what their standards are. Or they just simply rip the Old Testament out of the Bible altogether and they only look at the New Testament and then just the parts of the New Testament that they like. Or others totally discount subjective feelings and become legalists as they only observe the letter of the law. There were a lot of people in Jesus' day who considered him a lawbreaker. He didn't observe, for example, he didn't observe the Sabbath in keeping with their interpretation and their added-on restrictions. See that in Mark chapter 2. We, he seemed to disregard the rules regarding fasting. He openly defied the time-honored traditions of the ceremonial cleansing of hands and cups and, and plates before eating. Again, Mark chapter 7. To these people who had placed the rules of etiquette above the Ten Commandments, he was a dangerous criminal. And to their way of thinking, the worst thing he did, the worst thing he did was associate with low-class people, with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, even having the gall to eat with them. So judged by pharisaical standards, which was common in that day, Jesus had no breeding, he was impolite, he was impious, he was irreverent, he was uncouth. To the religious establishment of his day, he, he, he was out to set up some new kind of religious authority without any authority to do so as far as they were concerned. And with no regard to the obedience to the cherished teachings of the law and the prophets as they interpreted them. So, so when Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, did he mean that he was going to fulfill the law in order to do away 
with the law, not according to the Scripture. Christ makes it crystal clear here that He came to fulfill the law, not to cancel the law. So let's look at what Jesus meant and what He meant when He said He'd come to fulfill the law and the prophets, and then let's try to extrapolate from that what that means to us today. As you already know, the Old Testament can be divided into the two parts Jesus mentioned in verse 17, the law and the prophets. So Jesus is saying, in effect, here, what what I teach you will be in harmonious agreement with the teachings of your Old Testament. I won't contradict it. I won't diminish the importance of it. I won't destroy it. But then he goes a step further. Here's where he got in trouble. He goes a step further and says, not only will I not destroy it, I've actually come to fulfill it. To fulfill it here doesn't mean to fill out. It means to fill up. It means to complete something that's already there. So Jesus is literally saying, I will make complete the law and the prophets. If you look ahead at chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we read, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at His teaching, because He taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So no wonder people were astonished at Jesus' words, at the authority behind His words, because He's making this audacious claim. And no wonder so many of the Jewish religious leaders of the day wanted to kill Him. But they got a problem, don't they? They have a problem. In order to condemn Jesus, they've got to find fault in Him according to their Old Testament, of which Jesus is claiming to be the very fulfillment. they got a problem. Okay, so how was Jesus the fulfillment of the Old Testament? Well, the first thing we need to remember is that the Old Testament law can be divided into three parts. There's the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law. And we're going to get into this. I know it sounds boring, but man, it is exciting if you'll just stay with me. The moral law consists of God's holy commands for His people, like the Ten Commandments, the thou shalt nots, the thou shalls, right? And they're still in effect today. The ceremonial law dealt with the Old Testament system of sacrifices and feasts and burnt offerings, all the ritual and ceremony in the temple and elsewhere. And we're going to come back to that and spend some time there this morning because it's good stuff. The judicial law was made up of legislative statutes given to the nation of Israel for specific circumstances for in their specific culture and in many cases for a specific time period. They were laws and commands that defined how they were to live and not live, uh, how they were to uh, have a relationship with other people, with violators of the law, the various things they were to do and not do, eat and not eat, wear and not wear. I hope you find it as interesting as I do as we see how Jesus fulfilled each one of these three elements of the law just as He claimed. First, the moral law. Jesus was the God-man, right? And even though He was wrapped in human flesh, even though He endured every temptation that you and I endure, He never what? He never sinned. Say He never sinned. So I know you hadn't fallen asleep already, okay? He never sinned. And thereby, that in itself is a fulfillment of the moral law. He kept the law to perfection, the moral law. Something no one can do, right? The Roman soldier, even in his death, no, no, no one could find fault with him. Think about the Roman soldier who watched this, this amazing way in which our Savior gave his life, said, truly, this was the Son of God. 
Even his enemies had to admit that he had done what no one else had ever done before, perfectly fulfilled the moral law of God. Now, about the ceremonial law. What's the meaning of all these animal sacrifices and blood and and feasts and, and offerings? They all point to, they all are a picture of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Just as He fulfilled God's moral law in His perfect life, Jesus fulfilled God's ceremonial law in His sacrificial death. The imagery and the topology of the Old Testament is so amazing. Take, for example, the tabernacle. You see Jesus there at every turn. The fence around the tabernacle you see here, and I hope you can see it uh, halfway decent there, was that courtyard was 150 feet by 75 feet. But the fence around the tabernacle had just one gate. Okay? That gate was 30 feet wide. We'll see it here in another picture. There's the gate. So this, this one gate, you know this already, you're ahead of me already, is a representation of Christ as what? The one and only way for any person to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, right? To have fellowship with God. And to do that, one must enter through that gate to come into the place where God dwelled. Jesus said in His famous I Am statements, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6, right? No one comes to the Father except through me. And in John 10, 9, He says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He also said later in the Sermon on the Mount, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So there's the the gate, the one gate. And then there's the brazen or brass altar. And we see that right right here. I just want to give you the big picture view of it. I got another picture of it here for you. Okay. The root from which the word translated altar here comes from means to slay or to slaughter or to sacrifice. And, and you had to place there a perfect male lamb, one without spot or blemish, to sacrifice in order to go any further toward the holy of holies. The, the altar stood on a mound of earth. It was raised above the other furniture around it. And this is a picture of Christ, our sacrifice. Lifted up on the cross, his altar, which stood on a hill called Golgotha. And, and although the blood of the sacrifices did cover the sins of all the Israelites, they had to do that what? Every single year, over and over, they had to make those sacrifices. But Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, he came as the ultimate and last sacrifice for mankind when he offered up his life. Just as Isaiah prophesied, Christ would be like a lamb that is led to slaughter and pierced for our transgression. His blood sprinkled and poured out for us upon His cross. The Bible says a whole lot about this. I'll just pick a few verses. In Mark 14, 24, we read, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. In 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, we read, For you know that you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. In Hebrews 9, we read the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? In Hebrews 10, we read, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. 
And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice. Where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. And finally, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, one of our favorite verses, right? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, when that sacrifice was made, there was blood dabbed on the horns of the altar. You see a picture, a facsimile of a, a priest doing that. It signifies the power of the blood to atone for sins. Horns were a symbol of, of power and strength in biblical times. In the same way, there, there's mighty power in the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, is the horn of our salvation. So this is a picture of Christ the perfect one. He's the Lamb of God as well as the Passover Lamb for those who believe in Him. And the, and the progression in Scripture with regard to, to the Lamb is astounding. We're going to walk through that real quickly. Back in Genesis 4, I know that's hard to read. Abel offered a lamb for himself. It was a lamb for a man. And then we get to Genesis 22. And the, the Lord Himself provides a lamb for a sacrifice in the place of who? Isaac, right? A lamb for a child, the child of promise, remember? Then in Exodus 12, Moses said that every family had to offer up a lamb, one lamb for each household. And then in Leviticus 16, on the Day of Atonement, one lamb was slain for the entire nation. You see clearly the progression there, right? A lamb for a man, then a lamb for a child, the child of promise, and then a, a lamb for a family, and then a lamb for a nation. But then we move into New Testament times and a man by the name of John the Baptist comes along and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You continue on to Revelation chapter 5. We read some of this earlier. John is standing before the throne of God and he sees there between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, cried out with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then after the brass altar comes the brass laver. You see that in the foreground there. The priests had atoned for their sins by making this bloody sacrifice, but then they had to cleanse themselves at the brass slaver before they entered into the holy place, else they might be struck down by God. There's an application for us believers. The application for believers today is that we are forgiven through Christ's work on the cross, but we're washed through His Word. And we need to be washed daily in His Word to cleanse ourselves so that we can serve and minister and glorify our Father. Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her, Ephesians 5, to make her holy. Look at this. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word and to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. And then in Hebrews 10, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with blood, to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So you have the brass laver and then you enter into the holy place. Look to the right and you see the table of showbread there. Right? Which is the picture of Jesus who is the what? The bread of life. Right? Showbread was also called the bread of the presence because it was always to be in the presence of the Lord. 
But for us, a table and bread are a picture. They're a picture of God's willingness to have fellowship with you and me. His willingness to have communion with man. It was like an invitation to share a meal, an extension of friendship. Jesus exemplified this when he ate with tax collectors and prostitutes and the sinners of, of Jewish society. But it was more than just a gesture of friendship on earth. Because Jesus came to call sinners to himself to make them right with God so that they could enjoy everlasting fellowship with God. He said in John 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never grow hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that come down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. God so desires our fellowship that He was willing to, to come to earth from heaven as our bread of life to give eternal life to all who would partake in it. At Jesus' last Passover meal with His disciples, He described Himself as bread again. In Matthew 26, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to His disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is My body. Jesus' broken body, beloved, is our only access to fellowship with God. We celebrate, kind of wish we'd done it today, we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper to remember that important truth. And today, as in the, in the day of Moses' tabernacle, God still desires to have fellowship and to sit down for a meal with His people. In Revelation 3.20, He says, Here I, am I. I know you all think this is for unbelievers, but this is to the church. This is to you, beloved. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now look at, to your left, and there's the, the golden lampstand. You see that? That's kind of obvious on this one. Representing Jesus, of course, as the what? The light of the world. The lampstand was the only source of light in the holy place. So without it, the, the priests are going to be stumbling around in the dark. The light shone upon the table of showbread and the altar of incense, and it enabled the priests to fellowship with God and to intercede on behalf of God's people. And just like that lampstand there was placed in God's dwelling so that the priests could see and approach God, Jesus, the true light, gives light to every man. He came into the world so that man could see God and not live in darkness anymore. He says in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Later in John 12, he says, I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. He's represented, Jesus is, by the main branch of of the lampstand, that one that goes up to that middle candle there, the main branch. And we as believers are represented by the six branches that extend from that original branch. And having believed, we are now living as children of light. Say, I'm a child of light. You are, beloved. Ephesians 5, 8 says so. We draw our source of light from Jesus, the true light. Jesus calls us the light of the world. We looked at this last week. And commands us to let our light shine before men that they may see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. 
not only so, but the, the branches serve as a picture of Jesus' description of our relationship with Him. He says in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do a few things. Oh, that's not what it says. What does it say? Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then straight ahead is the altar of incense. You see right here, right before you get to the, the veil... Jesus ripped that apart with His atoning death at Calvary, praise God. You can approach the throne of grace there. You find the Ark of the Covenant inside of which are the tablets of stone, God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. Also inside the Ark, there's Aaron's rod that budded, just a, a dead stick that brought forth life. There's Jesus. The resurrection. Also inside the ark, there's a, a jar of manna. For Jesus is our nourishment. Atop the ark of the covenant is a slab of gold, a, a mercy seat upon which blood was sprinkled by the high priest. And now when God looks down upon the moral law in that box, He has to look through the blood of His Son poured out for the redemption of my sins and your sins. Beloved, this ought to mean everything to us because we have no hope of keeping the moral law. So praise God, Jesus kept it for us. He fulfilled the ceremonial law, doing away with the need we have for the veil, the priest, all the ritual pomp and ceremony. No more blood other than what He shed at Calvary is necessary to cover your sins and mine. Then Jesus went once for all into the most holy place and freed us from sin forever. He did this by offering His own blood instead of the blood of goats and bulls. Hebrews 9.12 So Jesus fulfilled the moral and ceremonial law. But what about the judicial law? This was given, remember, just for Israel as a nation with God as their leader in a theocracy. That's a God-led government. So when we talk about the judicial law, we're talking about the various rules that govern the behavior of Israel, right? All their legal codes, all the things they were supposed to do. We see this in Leviticus 26, verse 46. These are the statutes and rules and laws that Yahweh made between Himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. So God made special laws with and for Israel. In Psalm 147, verse 19, we, we read, He declares His word to Jacob, His statutes and rules to Israel. Psalm 147, verse 20, He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know His rule. In other words, God had particular laws for Israel. This is His judicial law which set them Apart, They had dietary rules, right? They had certain laws governing how they were to dress, what fabrics they could use, laws about agriculture, relationships, certain things they had to do. It set them apart, God's judicial law. So how did Jesus fulfill that? Let me tell you. Listen. He died on the cross. Stay with me here. When He died on the cross, that was the final, full rejection of, by the nation of Israel of their Messiah. Okay? That was it. 
And you know what? That was the end of God dealing with that nation as a nation for now. The judicial law that He gave to Israel passed away when God no longer dealt with them as a nation anymore, and Jesus built His what? Built His church. And praise God, He's going to come back one day, and He's going to redeem Israel again, and He's going to deal with them again as a nation. But for this time, when Jesus died on the cross, the judicial law came to a screeching halt. There was no more national people of God. There would be a new man made up of Jew and Gentile, and it would be called the church, and the judicial law came to an end. Now let me add this. Keep in mind that the foundations of the judicial law are rooted in the moral law. So the divine principles behind the judicial law remain and still exist, and they're still binding, they're still there. But the judicial, excuse me, the moral law, but the judicial law related to Israel was set aside when Jesus was fully rejected by Israel as the Messiah. So listen carefully now. You remember at the end of Jesus' ministry, he turned to the Jews and he said, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And First Peter chapter 2, stay with me, we're going to make the connection here. Peter makes it clear that that holy new nation of which Jesus is speaking is the what? The church. So Christ fulfilled the judicial law in the establishment of, of his church, and now we are we are his nation under his leadership. We're the bride. We're the wife of the Lamb. Revelation twenty one. Jesus came to be the fulfillment of the law, and aren't you glad he did? Because the only human way to heaven is to fully keep the law, which many have tried or claim that they have tried, but no one has ever come close to actually doing it. It's impossible. What does James say? For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Beloved, salvation is of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's the, he's the only one able to keep the law, the only one able to fulfill the law. And there's some good news there. That means that salvation is not about trying, it's about trusting. And that's good news. It's good news that we cannot work our way to heaven. It's good news that salvation is not about our good deeds outweighing our bad deeds. The law has to be fulfilled, and it was in Jesus Christ, in His perfectly sinless life, in His passion and sacrificial death. And if you come to Christ and you place your trust in Him this morning and follow Him in baptism, you'll join His church and following Him in His kingdom work. So what about the prophets? Real quick here, I know I'm running out of time. How did Jesus fulfill both the law and the prophets? For starters, by fulfilling over 350 promises. Prophecies, excuse me. Here's just a sampling. I'm going to go quick. Born of a woman in Bethlehem, of the line of Abraham, spent a season in Egypt, rejected by his own people, called a Nazarene, falsely accused, spat upon, silent before his accusers, crucified with criminals, hands and feet pierced, forsaken by God, would pray for his enemies, buried with the rich, resurrected from the dead, ascended to heaven. And that's, we don't have time to go through all of them, but if you haven't done that in a while, take the time to examine them on your own. It'll bless you. 
It'll grow you. It'll strengthen your faith. Now, now notice how Christ emphasizes the importance of the entirety of the law. Look what he says in verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth disappear, he's talking about the truth here, until heaven and earth disappear, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. The smallest letter to which Jesus is talking about is a Hebrew letter about the size of an apostrophe. The stroke of a pen to which you refer is something called the seraph. It's a little projection on the foot of a letter. The message is clear. Not even the slightest part, the most insignificantly, most seemingly insignificant part of the law will be done away with until heaven and earth no longer exist. He goes on to warn against the idea that God's law is unimportant. He says in verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's clear that Jesus thought the law was extremely important, important enough for us to obey. You see, he understood something. He understood that, that the law was not a means of salvation. He taught that God's law reflects God's heart, and God's law has never been revoked. Now, the idea that the law is a means of salvation has been done away with. The ceremonial laws pertaining to Israel have been fulfilled and replaced by the sacrifice of Christ, but the moral law of God remains in effect today as much as it was before Christ even came. You see, the law itself is righteous, but the law cannot make you righteous. If you are righteous, however, you will want to keep the law. You will keep it not only in letter, you'll keep it in spirit. The scribes were concerned with what? With keeping the, the letter of the law. But Jesus goes on to say in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, who are interested in keeping the letter of the law, you will never enter the kingdom of God. You can look at it like this. To the prophet Jeremiah, God made a great promise. He said, and I paraphrase, I'm going to make a new covenant. And the difference between the old and the new will be this. I'm going to write my law in your minds and on your hearts. No longer will be on tablets of stone outside of you, but on the fleshly tablets of the heart inside of you. Beloved, being concerned with only the letter of the law most always produces people who do less than God requires, yet God always requires more than our interpretation of His law demands. We're going to see this in the Sermon on the Mount and just starting next week, we're going to see it. On one particular occasion, Jesus said something like this to the Pharisees, some of whom were surprised that His disciples came in from the marketplace and just sat down at the table and started eating. They were hungry. See, he said, in effect, how careful you Pharisees are about the outside, but how negligent you are of what's on the inside. It's not that which goes into a man that defiles him, but that which comes out. It is the heart that matters, for it is out of the heart that come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and all these other things. But you remember how the record puts it later in Matthew 23. Our Lord tells the Pharisees that they are white sepulchers, whitewashed tombs. The outside looks great, but man, get a load of the inside. 
for us, beloved. Listen, that means we can come here nearly every Sunday, appearing by all accounts like we're everything we ought to be in Christ, and yet harboring sin in our life through our anger, our pride, our lust, our gluttony, you name it. And that's the one thing that our Lord denounces in the Pharisees. And He tells us that unless our righteousness exceeds these external religious demands, we do not even belong to the kingdom of God. See, the kingdom of God is concerned about the heart. It's not about my external actions, but what I am on the inside that matters. One writer has said the best definition of religion was this. Religion is that which a man or a woman does with his or her own solitude. In other words, if you want to know who you really are, if you want to know who you really are, you can find the answer when you're alone with your thoughts and your desires and your imaginations. It's what you say to yourself that matters. No one talks to you more than you do. What are you saying to yourself? It's true, isn't it? We're so careful most of the time about what we say and how we come off to other people. But what are we saying to ourselves? What a person does in their own privacy is what ultimately counts. The things that are within us, which we try to hide from the outside world because we're so ashamed of them. Beloved, these ultimately proclaim who we are and what we are. I'll close with this. The Pharisee is ready for bed. He walks over to a wall on which hang the Ten Commandments and he reads them. As he reads them, he checks them off one by one. I didn't do this today. I didn't do this today. I didn't do this today. All is well between me and God. But Jesus says, No, here's your checklist, child, as you lay your head on your pillow. Dear Lord, have I given you first place in my life today? Have I done all I could to bring glory and honor to your name? Have I hallowed your name? Have I deepened my relationship with you? Am I more like you today than yesterday, this week than last week, this month than last month, this year than last year? To borrow from the great Charles Haddon Spurgeon, I want to live my life in such a way that when I lay my head on my pillow at night, I can say, I love you, Jesus. I love you. And for the Lord to be able to say back to me, I know you do. I know you do. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do love you. We're designed nothing more than to be obedient to you. We're thankful for the your word tells us and shows us what we're to be and to do. We're thankful for your Holy Spirit that empowers us, that enables us 
to be obedient for your grace. Father, we, we, can't, we can't be saved without your grace. We can't be obedient without your grace. We can't be sanctified apart from your grace. We're so thankful for your grace at work in our lives. Father, we confess that there are many ways we fail to measure up. We're thankful that your word continues to call us, your spirit continues to call us, call us back to obedience. I want to pray for those who are here this morning, Father, who have yet to believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. They've heard the gospel before. Their hearts perhaps have been touched before. They've known that they should come forward and confess your Son, Jesus, as Lord, but they've held onto that pew with a tight grip, Lord. I pray today would be the day of their salvation, that they would relinquish control and give you sovereign control over their lives. Father, I pray for those who have just slipped away a little bit. They don't know why. Their fault, somebody else's fault, nobody's fault. They just slipped away, Father. But they want to come back. They want to be in right relationship with you. And I pray, Lord, that your Spirit speaks to them today. They'll not delay that return. And I want to pray for those who are searching for a church home, Lord. They, they've cast it about, and they've been to other churches. They've, they've seen what they were about, and perhaps today they're being led to put down roots here at Richland Baptist Church. For that be the case, I pray you would speak to their hearts and their minds and guide them to make such a decision. We pray all these things in the strong name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.